We are in Exodus. Are you ready? I love it. Such Bible geeks. Let's see how good you are. We're going to do a little bit of a quiz uh, via a video clip of Moses at the burning bush, which is the uh, Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4, and your job is to point out all of its flaws. God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. You are real. I am. I have seen the misery of my people. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring them out of Egypt. How can I set them free? I will be with you. Thank you for laughing. Can I? Thank you. You deserve a round of applause just for laughing. I really appreciate this. Uh, you know, when I see that, I think, of course Moses was stunned. He had George Lucas's industrial light and magic make this whole, you know, bushy thing. And then, you are real? Oh, I am real. Yes, I mean, that whole interchange. I mean, the whole thing is just hilarious. And then he always looks a little stoned. I'm not quite sure what kind of drugs he's on, but he has these little looks and stuff like this. So um, these clips are a lot of fun. And uh, I hope I didn't give too much away about, you know, find all the flaws. I mean, let me just say as, as a little bit of a disclaimer, there's wonderful things about these artistic depictions of these biblical stories. It gets the story out into public. It's a, a wonderful way of creatively trying to describe something that is in a text. So I don't want to completely demean all of the work and the efforts. But every now and then, it's just fun to laugh at a little bit of how we have imagined what these stories are and how they, they come up on scene. 
scene, you know, Moses just sitting in his tent looking so gruff, and then all of a sudden, you know. And when we get to the text, you're going to see that what actually happens is far, far different. And what happens is actually far more profound. For those of you who've been with us for a while, you know uh, that much of what we see on these screens, much of what we see depicted, is really quite imaginative from what is actually happening in the text. And so today what I'd like to do is share with you um, some layers of this burning bush experience, this very iconic, very popularly well-known image of Moses and the burning bush, and see if we can peel away some layers as to what the text, what the author of this text is actually trying to do and trying to show. Uh, The title of my message today is This Strange Sight. If you have your Bibles, go to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 10, and we will conclude there and then share a couple insights. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Let's tear this apart, starting with Exodus chapter 3 in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock, and that again is a distinct difference from what we saw in the video. He was out tending a flock, and he was leading the flock, came to the far side of the wilderness of Horeb. Now, the reason why these phrases are important, why it's important to take note of how the author is crafting this, is because the phraseology is giving you clues, giving you pointers as to what is about to come and what is about to happen. The word for he led the flock is literally to drive, which is the same kind of word that you would use for a chariot. The word for he led the flock is literally to drive, like you would drive a chariot, but also like you would drive a people, you would drive a nation. And so the phraseology there is used specifically to say Moses is getting some training. Just like he is a shepherd at the flock, he is going to become the shepherd of the people. So that he is leading a flock is not inconsequential. It's a precursor to what the calling and the purpose of Moses is supposed to be. 
Now, to the far side of the wilderness is literally after or behind the wilderness. And this is important because if you've ever been in the wilderness or ever been in the desert, you know that it's really parched and it's dry and it's a difficult place. What kind of place would it be if it was after the desert or behind the desert? What kind of place would that be? And so when he's driving his flock and he comes to a place after, we're talking about Moses leading and driving a flock and comes to a place that is so far beyond wilderness, so far beyond desert, that it is after the desert. It is beyond it. This is an extremely dry arid, desolate, destructive, harsh place. And for those of you who have ever lived or been in deserts, you know that a desert isn't just hot. It's actually very wasting away. It's very harsh. It's extreme colds, extreme hots, extreme dryness. And so these are the places that he's going to go. And that is the clue into the name Horeb. Now, Horeb is a wonderful, you can do all sorts of fun things with this the first definition for the word horror means dry, parched, wasted, which is very concordant. It goes along with the definition of driving past the wilderness. But you know what's fascinating about this word? If you take the letters of the word horeb, it sounds like the word cherev, which in Hebrew means sword. So he comes to the mountain, this dry, this arid, desolate place, but he also comes to the mountain of the sword. And right here, the author is going to begin to shift and start to clue in. Pharaoh has made war against God by threatening the people of Israel, by enslaving the very people of God. And now, God's going to fight back. He picks up his sword, he comes to the mountain of the sword, and the bush that he sees is the word sine, which sounds like the word Sinai, And in ancient thinking, the bush, this kind of a bush, was a bush that meant self-defense. Why? Because bushes, many of them in the desert, have thorns. So he comes to a mountain called Sword, and he's at a place called the bush, which has this connotation of self-defense. These are fighting words. Pharaoh has pecked a fight. For those of you who have seen Braveheart, I'm going to peck a fight. I should, ne- <laughs> I should never do that ever again. Okay, so <laughs> Pharaoh has pecked a fight with God, and God is now going to fight back. Now, that's important, because the way that Pharaoh has fought is through the sword, through, fi- through power, through might, through enslavement. But what comes next through the revelation in this burning bush and through the sending of Moses is a completely different way to fight. So, once again, as we have talked about before, and as you will continue to see throughout the scriptures, there's injustice, there's power, there's authority, there's, there's regimes that do things that are very horrific. How do you fight against them? So you're going to see some of those undertones. And what God does is he sends a guy who doesn't even want to go to go and fight. So this is all clued into a little bit of the character of who God is. The angel of the Lord appears to, the, appears to Moses in flames of fire. Now, this is really important because the authors want to make sure that you don't get caught up in the idea that the bush is burning. And the reason why I'm pointing this out is many times in discussions about the burning bush, we've talked about this before. You're going to have people, friends, skeptics say, 
did you, I mean, do you really believe in the burning bush? I mean, was God really in there? And the point of pointing out that an angel was there is that God is there, but not just simply because of some sort of supernatural thing. There wants to be a separation or a distinction between that image that you see, the burning bush, and God himself. God is not the supernatural image. God is beyond it, transcendent to it, in it, but distinct from it. And oftentimes, we see supernatural events and equate those things with God. But it's important to understand that to do that is to commit idolatry. It's to say that the supernatural experience that you're having is the very God that I'm worshiping is to commit a form of idolatry. And so to say that an angel of the Lord is clearly directly from God appeared in the flames is to make a distinction between the two. And it's important for us to understand that we should not necessarily, or we should be very, very careful not to equate any sort of supernatural experience that we have with God himself, because God is bigger, transcendent, far beyond that. These are all these little clues. And this is what Moses says next in verse 3. I will go over and see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up, which is so distinctly different from the video that we watched. A couple things to highlight. I will go over literally means I am going to turn. In other words, Moses was heading in one particular direction, and as a result of seeing this thing, he's going to actually turn from the direction that he was going and head toward it. And then there's this little word, na, which means please. I am going to turn towards it, please. It's almost like a beckoning, yearning call, and it's a very intentional turn by Moses. Again, in the video, in the depiction, it's kind of like, what happened? Moses doesn't have this. He, He sees something and then distinctly turns toward it. This strange sight is the word great or big or huge or magnificent, and why the bush does not burn up could be translated is not consumed, is not eaten up. Now, what's going on here? He sees something, turns towards it, wants to see this strange sight. Why is it not consumed? Why is it not eaten up? Rabbinical commentaries, Jewish commentators on this passage have noticed something. How long does it take for you to watch something burn? And then, at what particular point in your watching do you realize this thing's not being consumed, this thing's not burning up? This so, question: How long does this take? I mean, even if you had whatever accelerants you had on the fire, you would have to stop, pause, and really watch this thing for a while. And then there's that moment of, is it really burning? I'm not quite sure if it's burning. Wait, it's burning, but wait, it's not quite being consumed. And one of the things about this passage that we so often miss, because we get so caught up in the hugeness of that, the burning bush is burning, and it's not being consumed. The bigger story is that Moses paused, stopped long enough to pay attention, to watch, to take notice. I, I, don't, I don't think that... How long does that take? 
And then how long would it take for you to see something like this before you intentionally turn towards it, to move forward towards it, to then see, look upon, gaze upon, take in what is this strange sight? How long does it take for us? Well, the problem is we live in this kind of a world. So this is the first problem. The second problem is that we think spirituality, we think great leaders uh, of the Bible, great religious leaders, have some sort of high path to God. This is not so according to this passage. You know, the real spirituality here, the, the real root of the character of Moses, the real teaching about what kind of person this is that's going to lead these people out and be this great hero of Israel is somebody who just stops and pays attention. And we get so caught up again in the miraculous supernatural thing. Moses didn't get caught up in that. The great miracle, the great burning bush moment is that he paused, stopped, and just simply paid attention. You want great spirituality? You want to be really deep and intense with God? You want all that? Stop. Notice. And just simply pay attention. I don't think this thing's burning up. I gotta go over and see this thing. Now there's a couple ways of interpreting this. Look, turn, pay attention, notice. These are just four words that I'm using to summarize a little bit of what this Moses action is. But I see this playing out in all sorts of different ways. James Martin is a Jesuit priest and a pastor and um, author, and he's written all about Jesuit spirituality. He's got some great books um, of heaven and mirth, about humor and laughter and joy. But he talks a little bit about, you know, the deepest spirituality is just noticing yourself and recognizing who you are and who God has made you. That's the deepest part of your spirituality. We notice, we pay attention whenever there's a moment of prayer where we just stop. You know, when, when we live our lives and there's hurt and there's pain and there's frustration and there's anxiety, we're too far in it and we respond and we react to it. But prayer is that moment where you just stop and just pay attention to what it's doing to what it is, to where it came from, what's behind it. And when you have somebody else pray for you, what do you do? You share your prayer request. Why? Because somebody has paused and stopped for just a moment to pay attention to you, to your heart, and to your soul. I find this true even if you're not a spiritual person, you don't consider yourself a spiritual person, but science and technology and biology, these are all disciplines that pay very close attention to how this world works. So even if you don't think of yourself as a spiritual person, I I think a great lesson or great teaching from this would be if you are in these industries, whether it be science, technology, that's a spiritual activity. To be able to pause and say, why does this electron do this? What happens if I manipulate this? Dr. Francis Collins, um, who is the head of the Genome Project, has 
written extensively about the language of God and DNA, and he's talked about the weaving together of science and faith. And then engineering is about that too. My friends who are engineers and those of you in this room who are engineers, whenever you pay attention, whenever you stop and consider how does this work and how would that work and what are the physics and the geometries behind this, and whenever you do any of that, that is a spiritual exercise because you have stopped for a moment and paid attention to the world. The reason why it's so important for us to fight continually against the injustices in the world, one of the reasons is because we stop for a moment. We dig deep into spirituality, to this Moses burning bush spirituality, which is to say, I see you, and I'm going to turn toward you. For those of you who are just simply in customer service or serve, this is what you do. You pay attention to the people around you. If you have friendships, well, some of the deepest friends, the deepest friendships and the deepest relationships are those that have a reciprocal way of paying attention to each other. This is a deeply spiritual exercise. And then lastly, over the course of the last couple weeks, months, and years, I've had multiple conversations with several people who have had radical paradigm shifts of their faith, having an experience of one kind of faith, but then all of a sudden recognizing that the world around me doesn't necessarily work the way I thought it was. I thought it did. And that paradigm shift is where you stop and pause for a moment and say, I I need to go over and see this strange sight. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of other ways in which we stop and pause and pay attention. The great miracle of this story is not that the burning bush is burning and is not consumed. The great miracle is that Moses pauses long enough to notice. And when he notices, that's when God speaks. (laughs) See, every other film that I've seen is like, Moses, get over here. I need to tell you something. (laughs) God does not speak until after Moses stops, pauses, looks, and turns toward. For those of us in this room who may be wondering or struggling or asking questions about God, which are all legitimate questions, by the way, perhaps one of the things that we could do is rather than continually frenetically working, Maybe just stop for a moment. Pay attention. And that could be in science, technology, that could be in relationships, that could be in psychology, that could be in all sorts of areas, all sorts of crazy ways in which this world has manifested the beautiful creation of God. And start to pay attention in those things that interest you. So moving on, this is where God speaks when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look. This is so important because Moses sees and then God sees Moses. It's beautiful. Burning bush moments, this is my recommendation, this is my suggestion. Burning bush moments are not those moments when you have had a wildly supernatural experience. Burning bush moments are when you have paused long enough to simply pay attention to the God that exists already within the flames. I pray that all of us in this room have tons and tons of these burning bush moments. And it sometimes requires taking those sabbaticals, putting that cell phone down, not answering those emails, 
and sometimes just paying a little bit closer attention to your family, to your children, to your spouse, to your people at work. Just pause and pay a little bit closer attention. That's when those burning bush moments may happen. Now, there's a second layer here that I want to share with you really quickly. So Moses thought, I'm going to go over, see this strange sight. Why does this bush not burn up? It's really important to notice that the text is sharing with us that it's not burning up because of the very presence of God. It's not some special bush. It's not burning up because God is there. Now, this is important because the idea of burning, of furnacing, that idea is going to play right into the kind of slavery that the Israelites are in think about this for a second. If you take a look at uh, Egyptian archaeology, this is a picture of smelting. Um, Industries back in the ancient world were involved in all sorts of trade, obviously. You needed wheat, you needed cotton, but one of those were metals. And one of the ways in which to extract those metals, as many of us already know, is through the smelting process. This is an Egyptian hieroglyph which shows um, people blowing into the bellows to stoke the fire up to those heats. So in order to melt all of the ore and get the pure metals out, whether that be iron or whether that be copper. And down in a place called Timnah, many of you have been uh, with us to this place. This is also a little advertisement for our Come and Learn to Walk Israel tour. Uh, You can come to a place like this. And scattered all throughout this ground in a place where we know from, uh, from archaeological evidence that Egyptians came here to smelt copper, you can see things like this. Now, I brought some with me, so you can pass this around while I share, with, and please hand these back. This is leftover slag from the copper smelting that was happening here at this place. And you take a look at it, it's really amazing. This is the leftovers from thousands and thousands of degrees of heat where they would melt all of these ores down so that we get the purity of the copper. This is a model of what some people believe the bellows may have looked like, a very efficient way to pump air into that fire so that you get exactly the heat that you need in order to get the metals that you need. You can do a lot of research on this yourself. Thousands and thousands of degrees by doing this. It's amazing the heat that happens. This industry of the Egyptians is going to be the analogy that the scriptures use for the enslavement of Israel. But as for you, the Lord took you and brought you out of the iron smelting furnace out of Egypt. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 20. So, the question is, this bush that is burning, but is not being, and here's the key word, consumed or eaten up, may be a reflection of what's going on with the Israelites in Egypt that they are in the iron smelting furnace, the burning furnace of Egypt, but they will not be consumed. They will not be desecrated. They will not be destroyed. They will not be eaten up. And the reason is because Moses is going to go as the representative of God to bring that salvation, to bring that freedom to them. Why is the bush burning? and not burning up, not being consumed, because it's the image and the picture of what all of us, starting with the Israelites, experience through injustice, oppression, pain, suffering, that all of us go through a furnace. All of us get burned. All of us have to struggle and fight through some sort of injustice in this world. But as a result of the very presence of God in our lives or in that situation, we will not be consumed. 
You can go through the fire. You can go through the burning. Bring it on. It will not consume me. It will not eat me up. It will not destroy me. It will not kill my soul. It's going to hurt. It's going to be painful. It's going to be frustrating. It's going to be times where you have questions about why am I going through all this? All those questions legitimate. But the more and more that the presence of God is manifest, the more and more that we recognize that God is there and present in the midst of that burning, we will be burned, but we will not be consumed. Does this sound like a familiar story for those of you who have been in church or read your Bible or know this from Sunday school? Does anybody know this story from Daniel chapter 3? You can throw us in the fire, but we will not be consumed. Why is there a fourth person there? Because the presence of God, the very presence of the holy and the divine, the salvation of our souls is what keeps us from being consumed. Later on, this is exactly what's going to happen with the church. The church grows and builds and is ultimately going to be burned by the Roman Empire, but they will not be consumed. God calls out Moses, Moses. This is a marker of the divine voice, by the way. Anytime you hear a name being said twice, it is a, the idea that God is speaking. Don't come in closer. You're on holy ground. Why? Because it's the presence of God that is there. And this is what's so amazing. God sees the misery of his people. And just like Moses turned and saw the bush, so now God is turning to see Moses. There's that wonderful play on right there. And here's what's going to happen to those Israelites. Exodus 3, verse 8. This is an amazing phrase. So I have come down. God himself is saying, I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians. To take them out of that land. To bring them into a good and spacious land. Land flowing with milk and honey. Which, by the way, good, spacious, milk and honey, these are all references to creation. The idea that it is good. For those of you who are with us, the Genesis story, this is the way that God created. Spacious, this isn't about wealth or square footage. This is about being able to expand, to be fruitful and multiply and fill up this earth with that goodness of God. And milk and honey is all about the goodness and the nourishment coming from the land. The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and here's what's so, so amazing. God says, I am going to come down, and my presence with them in Egypt will keep them from being consumed. But guess what, Moses? <laughs> I'm sending you to go. Now think about this for a second. God says, I am coming down, and I am going to be in them, in that fire. But guess what? I'm sending you, Moses, to go, which reminds me of this picture right here. <laughs> we all are burned. We all go through fire. We all go through trials and testings and frustrations and injustices in this world, and it's the very presence of God that keeps us from being consumed. But the next question is this. What is it that is the presence of God that keeps us from being consumed. For the Israel, it's a person. This is the very first clue that we have towards a big theological word that we call incarnation, that God is coming down in the flesh, in Moses. Later on in the, in the Exodus story, we're going to hear a passage that says, I am going to make you like God to Pharaoh. 
So Moses becomes the very incarnation, the in-fleshness of God. And the Israelites, they don't see God, they only see Moses, and that's all they need. So for us, when we go through those burning moments, what is it that's the presence of God that keeps us from being consumed? You're looking at it. I mentioned earlier how thankful and grateful I am that people have come alongside us and journeyed with us in this amazing journey. You. Your presence. Your words, your stories, your journeys, all of us coming together, sharing a meal, praying for one another, caring for one another. Guess what? We all get to be that very presence of God. God is coming down. He is going to rescue. He has heard the cries of the people. And guess what? He's sending you. And that is a very strange sight, aren't you? All of us. It's extremely strange. Pause. Pay attention. Burning bush moments are about stopping and noticing. And when we notice that there's those of us around who are burning but are not being consumed, you can chalk it up to the presence of God through each and every one of us. I pray that this church pauses for a moment and notices and begins to pay attention to all of these wonderful, amazing ways in which God is present. Number two, I pray that we feel a sense that God has sent to us his very presence through each other and that we ourselves feel commissioned by God to be sent to each other to be that very presence. This is exactly what church is. And this is why we are doing what we're doing. And as we do that, others will look at you going through that iron smelting furnace and ask the question that Moses asked. Why are you being burned right now and not being consumed? Why are you going through the injustices that you're going through and the pains and the hurts and the frustrations that you're going through and not being consumed? Your story? I have a friend. I have a church. I have this brother, my sister. I have somebody who has been the very presence of God to me in the fire. And we both got burned a little bit, a little singed. We're smoking on the edges. But we are, we are not and will not be consumed. And that is a very strange sight, isn't it? Any questions? Nick? Yes? <laughs> Back to the film. Is God's voice really that seductive? Yes. Okay, next question. <laughs> Kwame. Yes. Uh, isn't later on in the story the Israelites say, wait a second, this is a little too much, don't show us. They start to recognize that power, and that gets through the Ten, com uh, ten Commandments, the Ten Plagues. It's a lot. It, I mean, these things are crazy. I was actually in a locust storm. I was, we were driving over to Nevada, and they were, there was locusts, like, swarm, I'm like, you open the door, and like a thousand of them rush into your car. It was a freaky thing. I, everywhere I stepped, you know, <laughs> it was gross. Yeah, sorry. It was really gross. 
So yes, those kinds of things that are happening is going to freak out the Israelites as much as it's going to. Moses himself, it says in this passage, he hid his face from God. It was too much. So there's this wonderful uh, paradox in the biblical narrative where God is phenomenally personable and there and as a friend talks to a friend face to face. And he's like way too much to handle. So that paradox, that both and of God, plays out throughout the text and the Israelites are going to hear that and feel that. Jerry? Uh, Jerry's question is, um, in some uh, areas of, of recovery and other kinds of expressions, the idea of hitting rock bottom or, or reaching the bottom um, feels like or sounds like being totally consumed. Sure, I will totally grant you that. And I would consider that maybe another paradox of the, of the two. Okay, last question, then we'll close and have some dinner. Tony's question is, addiction, could that be considered a form of idolatry? Um, from everything that I've read and understood and then have worked with those who are in recovery and have overcome, it sounds like idolatry to me. The, the reason why I'm hedging a little bit and don't want to put too much of a strong label on it is because idolatry and addiction have all sorts of connotations that come with it that you may not mean for each other. So whenever we do theology, which is the word idolatry, and then when we do counseling or psychology, which would be the word addiction, I always want to be very careful that the meanings or the connotations stay in those disciplines. So whatever we mean by idolatry, we mean in that discipline, and whatever we mean by addiction, we mean in that discipline. If we happen to find some connections and crossovers, then I'm totally game for anybody making those connections because they would be meaningful. But I would not want to make those connections absolute as the connotations from one may not be meaningful for the other. And there's plenty of people in this room who could probably speak much more eloquently and, and authoritatively to that. Yes, and if I'm understanding what you're saying, I think I'm understanding this word consumed. The literal word in Hebrew is eaten up. So you're actually being destroyed. So that's the connotation in the Hebrew from, from that particular term. Um, thank you so much for questions, and thank you for coming. Uh, let me close in a word of prayer, and we'll, uh, we'll let, let us go. Lord, I thank you for all my friends that have gathered in this place today that we have just paused for a moment, and I pray that we would just pay a little bit more attention. I pray that as we do, we would begin to turn toward all of these strange sights, and begin to look upon them, to be captivated by them, and to see you in the midst. And as we do, God, speak to us. Call on us. Save us. Come down to us and with us. And we pray in your name. Amen.